Hi there, and welcome back to 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, and our final episode of our Books That Changed My Life festival season. To learn more about festival programming, visit book-festival.mmjccm.org. I'm Jason Blitman from the Lambert Center, and I had the absolute best time talking to Jenny Jackson, who is a vice president and executive editor at the publishing house Alfred A. Knopf. I talked to Jenny about the publishing process, her job as an editor, and about her upcoming debut novel, Pineapple Street, which will be available on March 7th from Pamela Dorman Books. Books where Jenny served as editor include Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, who I had the pleasure of talking to in the summer season of 76 West. Jenny is a graduate of Williams College and the Columbia Publishing Course, and she lives in Brooklyn Heights with her family. And now please enjoy my conversation with Jenny Jackson. How are you today? Really good. Really good. How are you? I'm pretty good. I came to books very late in life. I'm like a new reader. It is as though I've just learned how to read. <laughs> like, oh, have you heard of these things? They're called books. They're really They're great. Super awesome. And I and I I understand the way sports fans feel about the people that work in the sports industry because I feel like I'm talking to my favorite team's coach right now. That's awesome. I love that. That's the so best I'm, way to put it. I'm like a little, I'm, my heart's a little fluttery. I'm very excited. I feel this way pretty much talking to every single writer that I work with. So yes. What a good Same. feeling to have. I hope that that stays that way for you. It does. So I was a late in life reader. You were the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I am. I was an all my life reader stories of going on a 10-day vacation with your family and bringing 10 books. Yes. That's yes. crazy. If you packed 10 books, how many did you read? All 10. 10? And then I probably bought one at the airport on the way home. Yes. Yes. Good for you. <laughs> I had um, roommates when I was in my 20s, as everyone does. And they used to make fun of me because I had a special stamp where I would have my name inside every single book that was mine in the apartment. Because I was like, Look, we're not all going to live together forever. And I just want to be really clear that these are mine. So like, keep your hands off them. That's so funny. And now you have a metaphorical stamp on a bunch of bugs. That's I love right. That. Yes. It, it like will never stop being thrilling to see my name in the acknowledgments of a book that I worked on. It's, I mean, how cool, right? Yeah. To, to be inside something that you loved. Were there books in particular in your youth that you were like, oh, this encouraged the love of reading? Yeah. I mean, some of it was that we had a real read aloud culture in my house growing up. And my dad read us all of the Lord of the Rings books. And he read us uh, books about dragons and books about Vikings. And then when I was in, I don't know, I guess it must have been, you know, fifth grade or so, he came home and he started bringing me Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High. And it was so smart because he just kind of met me where I was at that point. You know, somebody mm -hmm. who wanted to be reading by herself, but wanted to be reading about social stuff and sisters and friends and relationships, you know? And so those were sort of my bread and butter. And I remember we would go to this bookstore. It's called Jabberwocky at the Newburyport and then upstairs part for kids. And it was so awesome loving series books, you know? Like, you know that feeling when you read 
book one and you're like, oh my God, there are 30 of these, you know? And so I would just make a beeline upstairs, grab the next book, and I'd be like halfway done with it before we even left the store that day. Wow, that's so fun. And it's it's so funny because I almost have the opposite feeling where I read The First Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and I loved it. I like couldn't yeah. put it down. Yeah. But the I feel so overwhelmed knowing that there are more. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's actually something I think about in publishing as a problem uh, is bringing someone in and making them feel like they have to commit to more. And then it's always so tricky as an editor when you bring on someone and they say, well, I conceive of this as the first in a series. And you say, all right, but hang in there because we got to make the first one work because if it doesn't, you can't write book two. <laughs> it's yeah. Tough. Are you still able to read for pleasure? Yes, all the time. Even when I should not be reading for pleasure. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I have three edits due and all these other emails I should be doing. And instead, I'm guiltily lying in bed reading something that was published years ago that I just have no professional reason to possibly be reading. But maybe that's what's better is that it's like super backlist, deep, deep yes. backlist that you don't, it's not even something to talk about in the zeitgeist right now. Exactly. It's truly relaxing to read things that are current. Yes. Do you mind sharing what you're reading now? Sure. Well, I have I have a couple on my nightstand. So uh -huh. one is, um, I confess, market research, but I hadn't read Colleen Hoover and I need to know why everyone is reading it. So I'm reading Colleen Hoover. Uh, and then in an unlikely um, pairing, I'm also reading Asymmetry, which was out, I don't know, was that five years ago, four years ago? Something it's been out like for that, a couple yeah. Years. Um, and then I'm also almost finished with Tori Peters' Detransition Baby. Mm. So I'm reading three. That's not that deep in the backlist, but they books. are very different. Yeah. yeah, completely different. But, you know, I'm finding that each supplies a pretty different uh, mood and, and is feeding a different part of my brain. So it's mm -hmm. sort of, what am I in the mood for mm -hmm. tonight kind of thing. I know. I often, I'll do a hard copy of a book an e-reader copy of a book and an audiobook. And they're each, they're three very different genres, three different mediums. And so it's like, okay, what am I in the mood for? The audio is almost always nonfiction. It's a good, it, that's, I, I can't really listen to fiction, but. Um, but it all, it's all because I actually have a genuine attitude that books are medicine and that they are a major staple of my mental health and a lot of people's mental health. And that we need different things in different moments. And it's wonderful to be able to have an array of book drugs to choose from when you need this, that medicine. Yes, that's so true. And I love that that's still your mentality while it's your job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I find that um, I read in very different ways when I'm reading for pleasure versus reading for work. Uh, when I'm reading for work, even if I'm not actually editing at that moment, I always have a pen in my hand and mm. I'm always taking notes and I read more slowly for work than I read for pleasure. And when I'm reading for work, I'm constantly poking holes and thinking of comparative titles and I'm thinking of it as a, as a, oh God, that sounds gross. I was going to say I'm thinking of it as a piece of commerce and it's not just that, but I sort of have to be, yeah. you know, whereas when I'm reading for pleasure, it's, I don't, I don't have a pen anywhere in sight. I'm not taking notes. I'm not even being particularly deep about it. I'm just along for the ride and that's mm -hmm. fun. Well, and it's also you're catching them at different points of their journeys, right? So when you're reading for pleasure, you're reading something that yeah. 
what do you need to poke holes in it for? No. Other people have already decided it's totally. worthy of getting published and, you know, whatever. You can certainly have your own opinions about it, but that's a completely different thing. Yes. That's exactly. And, and also there, it feels very different to read something between two covers than it feels to read a stack of paper, which is why I'm actually not an ebook reader in general, because I, I think I value that differentiation. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So I, when I hear editor, my brain immediately goes to copy editor, yeah. you know, red pen, adding commas and getting rid of commas and adding a semicolon that I have never know what a semicolon is for. So that's what the editor's job is in yes. my mind. Yes. And I, my understanding is that is not in fact what your job is. No. And my dirty, dirty secret is that I'm actually a pretty mediocre grammarian and an embarrassing speller. So thank goodness that's not my job because I'd be unemployed. I, I, I would not be adding value to the project. No, instead, um, I'm an acquisitions editor. And so that means that part of my job is reading an absolute ton of manuscripts to evaluate whether or not we should take them on at Knopf and then um, bidding in auctions to try and win the right to publish those books at Knopf. And then if all things go well, doing um, all the way from macro edit to line edits with the author. And that means talking to them about characters, about plot, about pacing, moving scenes around, deepening storylines. And then later, yes, saying you've used the word ran five times in a row in this sentence. And that's actually one of the funny things about editing. Every author with each book has the word that they just use a million times in their book without realizing it. And when I figure out what that word is, I had one author once who used a tad about 50 times in a book. And once we figured it out and we did like a search all, we said, oh my gosh, we need to take out 48 of these. You said, I'm <laughs> sorry, you've used this a tad too many times. A tad times. too much. A tad. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So, so the like brass tacks of it all, how does it work? So you have relationships, I assume, with agents who are pitching you. Can you share like the nitty gritty for those of us who are really curious? What's it? What is a Take us on the journey from yes, the and, and the journey. Of the uh, I'll warn you: the journey ranges from very glamorous to deeply <laughs> glamorous. So sure. the glamorous part is that courting agents is part of my job, which means taking them out to lunch and forming these friendships and relationships, and letting them know what I'm looking for and hearing from them what they have, you know, coming in the pipeline. And then, you know, my job is to be an ambassador for Knopf and say. These are all the great things we're doing at Knopf. These are all of the excellent books we're publishing and you should want to have your books on our list. And, you know, the agents and, and also one of the funny things is the editor always pays for lunch. And so we take agents out and we usually take them somewhere nice. So that's the glamorous perk is that I, I get to eat a pretty nice lunch. Uh, which is sometimes funny because like very often my lunches are so much better than my dinners because then I get home and I'm like, I will have a can of soup for dinner because I I seared steak at lunch. Um, (laughs) And so once you have these relationships over time, the agents kind of get to know your taste and they know you as a person and they know what you're going to like. And so um, agents will say, well, I have a funny novel about families and I know Jenny likes that kind of thing. So I'm going to send it to her. Or they might say, I have this really intense 
thriller that's super violent. And I wanted it Knopf, but I know Jenny doesn't do a lot of super dark, violent books. So I'm going to send it to someone else at Knopf instead. And then also a lot of times they'll call me up and they'll say, hey, I have this thing. It's not for you. I want to send it to Knopf. Who of your colleagues should I send it to? And so we do that. Um, The really fun part is when you have in a hot project, when you have in something that's really good. And it is like the best kind of torture. Because when I get something in, like when I got in Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Uh I read it overnight and I was sick. I wanted it so badly. And I knew I wasn't, I honestly wasn't going to sleep until I got it. So, you know, the next day I'm talking to my boss, I'm talking to every acquisitions editor in my group, I'm talking to finance, I'm running numbers, I'm, you know, just absolutely chomping at the bit because I so desperately wanted that book. And I knew all around town, other editors were reading it and other editors were going to make a play for it. And I was going to have to differentiate myself from them. And that if I didn't win the book, I was going to be crying mm-hmm. at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, it's so exciting when you want something, but it's also visceral because I mean, a really special book comes along once in a great while. And this is what we make our living by is, is finding these special, talented new writers. And then once you have a new great writer, you can publish them book after book after book. You know, I have writers I've done 10 books with, writers I've done seven books, six books. But this was my first book with Gabrielle. And I just wow. desperately wanted this book, but I also wanted Gabrielle because I mm-hmm. know whatever she does next is going to be amazing. It's just somebody I want to be working with forever. Um, so that was like wonderful and stressful. But the way it works is I get reads from my colleague. They all write me reports. And then we go to the acquisitions board where I pitch the book to marketing, publicity, our publisher, our editor-in-chief, and the team. And together we come up with what we think the right financial projection is for the book. And if you think it sounds ridiculous to be trying to apply financial figures to a story about two people who make video games about, you know, love and race and class and disability and friendship. You're right. It's an insane thing to have to, mm-hmm. to have to, what is a story worth? It's a crazy thing. And it's nuts that that's part of my job, but it is. And not only is it a part of your job, that's like the thesis of your job. What is a story worth? Is it worth getting published? Is it yeah. worth sharing with other people beyond financial value, right? Like, is it worthy? Yes. So, okay. So you said you'll send it, you'll share it with some in-house readers. Yes. So is it like a, obviously it's not like a Jenny read it. So, and so therefore you're going to publish it. So you, you share it with a handful of colleagues, they get, they give reports and it's sort of this like collective pitch of why it's a Knopf book. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a publishing by committee situation because honestly, if if I were so crazy in love with something and nobody else liked it, my boss would still let me buy it because I have an awesome boss and because I've been doing this for 20 years, and, you know, and have been right often enough that that my boss would still let me do it. And so it's not about um, it's not about needing everyone to agree that they love something, but it is. It helps us evaluate the landscape of readership 
by having a variety of different, different perspectives. Readers. Right. Exactly. Right, and, course. you know, it's interesting because um, different readers can bring different comparisons to it, different readers, because we all have read very widely, you know, across the industry, but obviously I haven't read everything. And so being able to share it with my colleagues and have them say, you know, it sort of reminds me of Cavalier and Clay. Oh, actually, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, whatever else. It, it, that mm. is a way in which we can kind of uh, think about the economics of it a little bit better. Because then what we do is we think of really realistic comparative titles and we say, okay, so it is most similar to these other three books. Let's take a look at what those three books sold. And let's think if this is more or less commercial than that and try and ballpark what the appropriate offer would be based on comparative titles. An author was recently telling me about her next book. I was like, oh, just a heads up. That gives me the vibes of blank. I was like, don't read it, obviously. Yeah. But just so you know, there is a somewhat vibe comp title out there. Okay, so you've acquired a book. Yeah. Then what happens? Well, then the first thing I get to do is call the author and we get to have just like a love fest that now <laughs> we're going to be together and that I've won and conquered my opponents. And that's always just a really fun, happy call. Do you pitch to the author? Do you have, it's like a meeting. Yeah. yeah. And the so one I you want to work with for these reasons. Exactly. So it's, it's either a call or a Zoom and, you know, they'll do it with basically everyone who's going to be offering on the book. We'll have the chance to talk to the writer. It's such an important part of the process because if the author and the editor have different visions for the book, you, it's better to figure that out before you make a contract to work together, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I've definitely had calls with an author where we got off and thought, hmm, I'm not sure that we see exactly the same book here because I want to push it more in this direction and they seem to want to pull it more in the other direction. And so... If I'm not the victor on this one, that's probably okay. And then there are others, and honestly, it happens to me most of the time where I get off the phone and I'm like, oh, great, now I'm even more in love. I'm be an erotic mess until I get to buy this book. That's what happens most of the time. And that's so I'm so really funny. trying to use those calls to like woo them and convince them that I will take good care of them. But also good that that's how you're feeling because that's the, per the person that an author wants to work with, someone who's going to be as passionate about the journey. Yes. Um, okay, so you've made the phone call. You have the love fest. You're so excited. Yeah. Then what happens? And then we do the <laughs> first big macro edit. And so by then, I'll, I will have only read the book once before I buy it. Because in general, if it's like a, a sought-after project, that's going to happen within a week or two. It's going gonna, it's gonna to move fast. And wow. so I'll only read it once. And then after I buy it, I sit down with my pen and I read it a second time. And usually that first round of edits I'm remembering all of the things I felt the first time I read it. I've also then absorbed the reader's reports from my colleagues who read it, who said, you know, I thought the third section was a little slow, or I didn't really believe that this character would betray her mother in the scene or whatever. So those are all, you know, those are all like stewing around in my brain as I do the second read. And in the second read, I'm really taking much better notes on which scenes can be tightened, which scenes should be moved, which scenes, you know, are repetitive, where where we need to deepen character storylines and so on. So that's, that is the more macro edit. And often I won't even send a marked up manuscript at that point. Often what I do is I just write a long letter, you know, and mm -hmm. it could be three pages, it could be eight pages, but it's sure. a letter 
um, just explaining what I want the author to do. I send that to the author and then I know that the author usually gets it, has like a panic attack, has to walk around in circles like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. Why have I made a deal with this crazy person? Uh, I'm miserable. And then we arrange a time to talk after like they've had a day or two. And then usually it's like, okay, we can do this. And then we have like a great talk about the letter and about what they're going to do. And I really, my whole thing with writers is like, I always want to meet them where they are and um, work in a way that's best for them. So if they want to then just go off into their cave and work by themselves and not show it to me again until it's perfect, great. If they want to try a scene and send it to me and say, is this what you were talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going with that. Not exactly try this again. I'm happy to do that too. Mm-hmm. So from then on, it just becomes a collaboration. And it's really just like a totally bespoke process of me That's trying cool. to help them, um, you know, with whatever with whatever energy they have left to really deliver a revision. It's hard because, you know, sometimes they're pretty cooked you know and they're like so in their head on a book and it's really hard to then move chunks around and you get snow blind and so mm-hmm. that's my job is to like provide as much clarity as i can at that point mm-hmm. and now when you buy the book do you already have a sense of generally when you hope to uh, get it on a shelf so there's a timeline in place so there's like stakes and pressure and Yes, but I will say I feel so lucky that in general, you know, I work for a really big company. We have a really big list. And so I never have to deal with that pressure of being like, oh my God, we don't have a big fall book. You have to slam this edit out and get it on the fall list. Like, yes, I've done crash edits. They're not that fun. They're really hard. And it puts a lot of pressure on all the different departments. If you have to crash out an edit, which usually means trying to publish a book in under six months. It is really hard on the production team. It's really hard on the copy editor. It's really hard on the design team. It's really hard these days to get on a printer in that amount of time. And it's brutal on the author. So crash edits are tough. And so I feel very lucky that I worked for a big company where we, we we have a lot going on. So it's never just on my shoulders to pull a rabbit out of a hat. Um, I do find in, in the UK, they, rush to publish a lot faster. And so on big books where we have an international publication, pretty much every single time the US and the UK are doing behind the scenes battle and we're going slow down and they're going speed up. (laughs) (laughs) Like half the books I work on. Um, But I I really try and get the book right before I launch it because Mm -hmm. launch meeting is my, is me presenting the book to a hundred people in house who work for sales, who work for marketing, work for publicity. It's this huge presentation and it's the first time that people hear about a book and I give them the manuscript. And it's sort of like you only get one chance to make a first impression and I want it to be perfect and ready and I want to like tell them all about the book. I want to have them intrigued and delighted and then I want the perfect book to land in their inboxes so that they can read, start planning and start selling. So I just, I really, I put the emphasis on getting the book right rather than rushing out the door. Generally speaking, what does that timeline look like? You acquire a book and from then until the shelf is roughly how long? So if On I average. bought, yeah, if I bought a book today in January, I would probably try and publish in a year and a half from now. Oh, wow. Okay. And that would give me six months to edit and then a year to publish because I would mm-hmm. like a full year from when I 
present it at launch to my 100 colleagues. And at that time, I put it into copy editing. I would like a full year between that and publication. And I, for first-time writers, that seems so glacially slow. No, for them, it's like torture. It's like, you're engaged. You can get married in four years, you know? It's like well, slow, but some of these writers, it probably took them six years to write the book in the first place. So I imagine they're like, what's another year and a half? I, you know, everyone really is antsy. Once they're done, they're like, <laughs> all right, I'm done. Like, let's get it out of here, you know? Right. But instead, we have to we have to build in all this time because first I need my sales reps to read and then my sales reps need booksellers to read and then we need to develop a jacket. We need to pull together a campaign. So mm-hmm. we need that full year. We really, I mean, we can do it faster, but we work best. We have sure. I mean, I probably will receive a galley mm, at, at minimum three months before publication. Yeah. If not, six months or longer before publication. And so I can only imagine to have a galley in your hand, which has a cover designed, which has been printed, which has been copy edited. Has been generally copy edited. Right, right, right. So like you can only imagine the the working backwards from there. That's crazy. But But you know, you're touching on the actual like most sensitive spot of the entire process. And that is like it kills authors and I totally get it. Uh, that galleys, the advanced reader's copies, are made from a copy-edited manuscript, but not beyond that. The book goes through several passes beyond that, and the author will catch embarrassing mistakes later that, unfortunately, reviewers are are, are seeing, you know, yeah. on the page. And that's always so painful for writers, but it's part of the process. And also, you guys know. Right. You know, totally. So you've hit your first six months of editing and you've, you've now given it to the copy editors and it's in the process of creating the campaigns and everything. What is your part in that year leading up to publication? Um, as the editor, I'm really the, let's say, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the, the center of the wheel that everything spokes off of because the author is the center of the wheel, but I'm there with my arms wrapped around the author directing all the different spokes. And so the editor is, working with publicity to come up with a campaign is working with marketing to talk about readership, to talk about the design, to talk about how the campaign should go. The editor is the one presenting the book to the art department and looking at early sketches and helping the art department, you know, art direct the jacket. And also the editor's like constantly pitching. By the time a book is out, I've probably pitched it eight times. You know, I pitch it at my launch meeting. I pitch it on audios. Then I'm I'm invited to, you know, pitch to librarians. I'll be invited to pitch to um, academic marketing. And so you you get a lot of opportunities to to pitch, to talk about mm-hmm. the book. And that's just remains sort of a constant. You're just banging the drum for that book for a full year. Are you the one pitching to Good Morning America to, no, that's Okay. That's the publicist. Yes. Though, so, you know, oh, sure, I sure, like sure. to get out there and do <laughs> it. But, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, you and I confessed early on in conversation that neither of us like to read the descriptive copy. Mm-hmm. But I'll say as an editor, that's like the most prideful part of my job, because if I write excellent copy, I see that that copy gets it becomes part of the way the book is pitched by publicists. And then it works its way into reviews and it just becomes like the way that you talk about a book. You know, one one book that I, I worked on recently, I worked on Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. And one of the magical things about Emily is that her books are complicated. 
they are not linear. And if you try and say very quickly what Sea of Tranquility is about, you'll end up kind of flummoxed, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, she and I worked really hard to get the copy right for that book. And then it's been gratifying and fascinating to see that that copy really became the way that all the reviews approach talking about the book. And maybe mm-hmm. that's just because it was the only way to actually talk about it. Or maybe that's what, you know, good copy does. Do you feel the pressure of being a tastemaker? Um, no. And the reason I don't feel that pressure is because I get it wrong all the time. And mm. we all do. And you just have to make peace with it because um, when you are choosing fiction, you're following your instincts and your gut and your heart. And you have to listen to just what yourself as a very specific reader. And it means that you make mistakes and you're going to pass on bestsellers. And yes, you're going to kick yourself, but it's part of the process. And you just try and get it right more often than you get it wrong. Um, and I think that the only thing that I can keep doing is like knowing that um, I'd rather get it wrong by going for something that I think is special that doesn't really work in the marketplace rather than passing on something because I can't see it working in the marketplace, you know? And I certainly do that. I pick books that I love and that don't totally take off, but I still love them just as much and see just as much value. And to me, just because, you know, it doesn't sell 100,000 copies doesn't make it any less perfect to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's sort of, that's sort of why I would, I don't feel any pressure because, um, because I know I mess up all the time and that's okay. I wish we all remembered that it's okay (laughs) to mess up all the time. Yeah. What would you say is your absolute favorite part of being an editor? I mean, my favorite part of being an editor is the writers and Mm. the relationships that grow out of engaging with their work. I think that I have a, I'm sitting in the front row center of the most amazing book club on the planet. And I'm actually getting like a private Q&A session with every single writer, you know, and that's like, that's to die for. And, um, and a lot of, I mean, honestly, some of these people like Catherine Heine, gives the best email around. I mean, her emails have me rolling on the floor. So I just feel like, oh my God, I should just publish all of her emails. And they would be bestsellers. So and funny. so that's my favorite part is getting to be so up close and personal with um, people who I admire so much. I love that. And I love that you gave a really fun example too. So speaking of, how was it being on the other side? Honestly, having written a book there's not a single thing about it that I regret. I'm so happy that I did this. It has made me a better editor. It's mm. made me a better thinker about books. How um, has it made you a better a better editor? So in two ways. One, just in terms of general empathy. I think that it's helped me understand that when a writer doesn't want to do something, you know, doesn't want to do something from a character's point of view, doesn't want to say how two characters met, it's it's because they don't know or they can't access that. You know, I have just so much more understanding that um, kind of where the limits are of mm. what you're able to do and see inside of a book. Um, and then more importantly, I think that it's helped me understand structure in a much better way. Um, mm. You know, understanding structure is always an important part of being an editor, but it's sort of like... Um, I don't know. I feel like now I I used to be a pilot and I used to fly an airplane and now oh, I'm mechanic and I've taken it apart and put it back together, you know? It's funny. I was just going to say, it's like being in the weeds versus being in the mud. That's yes. yes. But, right. It's like a version of what you said. Yes. Exactly. Just so much deeper. Um, 
And I'm just like, I'm thrilled that I did it. And in some ways, I wish that I had done it 20 years ago. But honestly, I think it's pretty thrilling to write a first novel in your 40s because I think I'm smarter and more interesting than I was when I was 22. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of Pineapple Street. And it's the best book I could have written right. So I feel really good and excited about it. What inspired Pineapple Street? You know, um, it was sort of a few things coming together. I wrote it in the like bleak second half of 2020 leading into 2021. And I was, so our offices were closed and we weren't seeing anybody and I was never getting on the subway. And I was just walking around Brooklyn Heights all the time. And I was very in my head and I sort of became obsessed with this house on Pineapple Street. I was living on Pineapple Street and it was just one block down on Pineapple in Columbia. I was living in an apartment with two children and my husband. And when the kids were asleep and my husband needed to make a work call, he had to go into the bathroom and close the door because otherwise like it would be waking the kids up. And we were just, oh my God, we were just in each other's way all the time in this apartment. And so I was walking down the street and I saw this big apartment on Columbia Place in Pineapple. It had these bay windows and there was like a chandelier hanging down and there was a grand piano. And I just remember standing there and being like, are you serious? You have a grand piano in a New York City apartment? Like I thought that was something that realtors just like photoshopped in. Like Like, we're making phone calls in the bathroom here. But it just sort of like kind of got me thinking like who lives there? And then Right around this time, the New York Times published this piece called The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism about these socially conscious millennial heirs who were inheriting fortune that were in direct conflict with their morals and trying to get rid of it. And I thought, oh my gosh, what would it be like to be a rich family in this grand piano apartment on Pineapple Street and then to have a kid who is like an AOC, Bernie bro, tear it all down, anti-capitalist. How would her stuffy blue blood family feel about that? And those ideas just kind of stirred around in my brain until a family came to life with Pineapple Street. And I had the best time writing it. And some of it was because I just had all this kind of stored up social energy that I wasn't Mm -hmm. getting out. You know, I wasn't getting to talk to people. I wasn't talking to my colleagues. I wasn't going to book parties. I wasn't going to fancy lunches. I was not eating (laughs) seared steak every day. And so I just had all this social energy. And I was like, well, if I can't talk to my friends, I'm just going to make them up, you know? And so that was the spirit of it. So so for our listeners, I'll give you my uh, synopsis and see what you think. I would say that the most synthesized version is it is three women in a family, two who are blood, one who is an in-law, navigating the in and outs of being generationally wealthy Yes, in in Brooklyn. Nailed it. You're (laughs) hired. What I love the most, first of all, that you started with Sasha, the outsider, to say, Hey, we can relate. There's we we have an outsider's perspective. But ultimately, it, the the bird's eye view of the multimillionaire. I think it's hard to sort of be relatable. Um and and we forget that like people, whether you have a lot of money or not, have a lot to them. Yeah. I think that money uh 
raises the stakes and it offers people the chance to be good in another way that maybe they hadn't thought of. What are you, which fruit are you? I mean, really, really, I'm like an avocado and I'm like kind of. No, you're not allowed. You have to pick one of the streets. All right, then. the siblings. Then I'm actually, I'm going to go with pineapple because Uh I, I, in general, I'm always trying to seek the fun and I'm, and I'm pretty sweet inside. What about you? Same, the same. Yeah. Pineapples are the best. Pineapples are the best. How much of these stories came from your life? There were some of them where Mm. I was like, this had to have happened. The tooth swallowing and throwing up. I was like, this had to have happened. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That that, absolutely. So actually, I owe so much to my friend. I won't say her name so that her in-laws don't get mad at her. But a good friend of mine that moved into her in-laws brownstone in Brooklyn Heights. And her husband's family just hadn't really ever actually moved out. And her toddler discovered a baggie of baby teeth. Her sister-in-law's baby teeth ate them and threw up. I was like, this story is so good. And it's so specific. It has to be real. And I was fully like, before I even wrote it, I was like, can I have that? She's like, yeah, I'm not a writer. You can have it. Thank you. And she's read the book and she loves it. So Speaking of other people reading the book and loving it, how does it feel when it's no longer yours, right? Yeah. Like the editor, we've also interviewed a cover designer, not just a cover designer, we interviewed your cover designer. Oh, um, how cool. Uh-huh, Elizabeth Yaffe. So we talked to her, we talked to an audiobook narrator, not your audiobook narrator, but another one. Um, and a lot of what they talk about is being an interpreter of the work. You've sort of passed it on into the world and now these other people are taking your world and interpreting it in their own way. What does it feel like? Yeah. You know, the thing that was so shocking to me was my intense desire to be published. Mm. And I think I had always thought that people wanted to be published because they wanted uh, for they wanted to be paid, that, which is totally valid or they wanted to be famous or they wanted, you know, to be known as a writer. And that all totally, I mean, that all seems honorable and makes sense to me. That actually wasn't the experience at all. The I felt that having written the book, having people read it was the necessary conclusion that I, it wasn't done until people read it. And I hadn't understood that, but I felt like I was until between when I finished writing the book and I started getting people to read it, I felt like I was walking across a room and I had this glass of water full to the brim and I just couldn't let it spill. And it's like, until people are reading it, I, I'm still just totally like in the middle of the room holding this full glass. It's going to spill. Right. wild how, yeah. how much I felt the need because it turns out I wrote it because I very specifically wanted people to have the feelings that are in this book. And I wanted mm-hmm. them to laugh and feel joy, which was a big part of my motivation writing it. And I was so lucky because I work in the Penguin Random House offices and our audio department is in the same building. And so the day that the audio was being recorded, I was invited to come down and listen. So I went down to the fourth floor and I snuck in and I put on headphones and Marin Ireland was reading the scene with the teeth. Marin! Reading the scene no with the way. teeth. Oh, that's so funny. And I started crying because she was so amazing and it made it real in a different way. And I felt like, all right, I'm putting the glass down. You know, it was so awesome. I love that. 
I'm sure you have to run to a meeting. Oh, I love this conversation. But I quickly have to ask you, what is the book that changed your life? So this is going to be so unsurprising to you. The, the book that changed my life was The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing by Melissa Bank. And that book was published in 2020 or, I mean, sorry, sorry, 2000 or maybe 1999. Anyway, I read it when I had moved to New York to do the Columbia Publishing course. And in it, the character is a young book editor. And I just reading about her editing manuscripts and having an affair with an older colleague, which has never happened to me and I've never done. (laughs) I was just so totally bewitched. And I was like, that's what I want. This is, that's what I, I want to live inside that book. And I feel like I've just done everything I can to have the life that that character wanted to have in that book as an editor. Good for you. It like literally changed your life, the course of your life. That's fantastic. This has been so fun. What a joy. Truly. Congratulations on Pineapple Street. Thank you. And I can't wait to shout it to the rooftops once it comes out in March. Oh, I so appreciate it. I love that we have the same taste and I'm just going to start spamming you with all my books from now on. Bring it on. Thank Thank you so much. Talk to you You soon. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com. The Books That Changed My Life Festival is made possible thanks to the Harold Anfang Foundation, the Israel Office of Cultural Affairs, the Consulate General of Israel New York, PJ Library, and in partnership with the Jewish Book Council. You can shop the festival books with our partner Books or Magic, a family-owned independent bookstore in Brooklyn committed to being a welcoming, friendly, and inclusive space for all people. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our editor is Matt Temkin with music written and performed by Pearl Wolf. We hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes glimpse at books. You can check out all of our earlier episodes before a new season launches in the coming weeks. Make sure to like and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. Until next time.